Good morning. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. A day which we have never seen before. A beautiful summer day outside. And a warm, affectionate day inside these walls. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you once again in spirit and in truth. In safety and security. We also thank you for the gift of this assembly of saints. <clears throat> for the ability to walk with each other. And share our lives with one another in this oftentimes troubling world. We give you all manner of thanks and praise. You are great and greatly to be praised. At the same time, Lord, our hearts are weighed down and burdened by many anxieties, fears, and uncertainties. Uh, personal storms, national storms, cultural storms swirl all around us all the time. And we are concerned and worried about many things. Uh, we seek your will in this world and in our lives. Um, we seek justice, we seek righteousness, and we seek peace, which can only truly come from you. We ask that you would calm us and soothe us and reassure us that we are your children and that you are our God. Speak to us now a word of hope and inspiration and sustenance, for indeed we need it and we need you. We thank you, Lord, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for today is indeed the gospel lesson assigned for today, namely Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62, which have already been read in your hearing. My sermon title for today is based in part on verses number 51 and 53, where it reads that Jesus set his face and his face was set. So my sermon title for today is Set Your Face and Keep Playing. Verse 51, our beginning verse today is the linchpin verse. Indeed, the turning point of Luke's entire gospel. You wouldn't think so because it's so innocent. <clears throat> when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Everything prior to this verse has taken place up north in Galilee, where for the most part, times have been good and joyful with Jesus teaching and healing without excessive controversy or impediment. Indeed, his glorious transfiguration on a mountaintop, a high moment if ever there was one, has just occurred. Beginning with this verse, however, Jesus will resolutely set course for down south in Judea, Specifically towards Jerusalem, where his statements and actions will stir more controversy, encounter more opposition, and conclude ultimately in his death. <clears throat> the tone and the mood from here on out will be more somber and foreboding. When the days drew near is a sad phrase indeed. To be taken up refers to the entire sequence of his betrayal Suffering, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus set his face indicates his determination and his focus on what must have been an incredibly difficult road. You see next that Jesus and his followers would have stopped on the way in Samaria. 
that makes sense since Samaria is the region in between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. But the Samaritans deny him hospitality because, as you can see there in verse 53, his face was set toward Jerusalem. <clears throat> Samaritans and Jews did not think highly of one another at this time. Uh, there was often open animosity and outright derision. Jews regarded themselves as the pure blood descendants of Abraham, who had returned from the Babylonian exile hundreds of years earlier, while Samaritans were descendants of Israelites who had intermarried with pagan peoples during the Assyrian conquest even earlier than that. On top of this racial-slash-ethnic divide, then, they had competing religious systems with the Samaritan temple located on Mount Gerizim and the Jewish temple located in Jerusalem. And since Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem, the Samaritans would have taken that as a slight of their culture and their religious beliefs and so would not have received this rejection angers Jesus' two hot-headed disciples, the brothers James and John, whom Jesus elsewhere nicknames Boanerges or Sons of Thunder, most likely due to their temperamental ways. Their quick-tempered, short-fused ways are on full display here as they seek to imitate the prophet Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 18 and call down fire from heaven to consume these, their presumed enemies. How many of you have ever felt similarly? Have ever desired to fight fire with fire? Have ever felt malice and desired ill will towards someone who offended or insulted you without cause or provocation? Have even secretly hoped and prayed for it? But the ways of Elijah are not the ways of Jesus so Jesus turns and rebukes them and their request, curiously adhering, as he always does, to a way of nonviolence and peace. They then very likely proceed to take a major detour going around Samaria entirely to the east, parallel to the Jordan River, all the way down south to Jericho before turning and heading west to Jerusalem. What follows is one of the most challenging and demanding texts in all the New Testament. We blithely assume all that's required for salvation or discipleship is simply to believe in Jesus Christ, to accept the fact that He died for our sins, and pretty much just try to be nice to other people. And so we tame, domesticate, and sentimentalize such texts as the one we have before us this morning. You have essentially three different discipleship scenarios before us here. Three opportunities for someone to follow Jesus, which unfold and play out along different lines. But all of them illustrate the priority of following Christ above all other life claims. You have to admire the eager enthusiasm of the first supplicant. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Have you ever felt such fervor, such passion for Jesus that you would honestly say such a thing to him and mean it? Many people know Jesus' response by heart. 
Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In essence, Jesus is testifying to his homelessness, the fact that he has no home. I think we are kind of dimly aware that he was itinerant, that he traveled a lot, but we don't think any further or any more deeply about that. When your homelessness exceeds that of even beasts and wild animals, that's pretty homeless. We don't know this person's response to such fine print in the Jesus offer. But we can pretty well guess at it. To follow Jesus herein means to accept a life devoid of material comforts and stable security, both of which you and I possess. The next two instances are fairly similar. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So the call of Jesus takes priority over burying a dead parent? The call of Christ really can't wait even a couple days? To carry out such a loving and noble task? I mean, is it really that urgent? What makes this so over the top? Ridiculously and exasperatingly challenging is, as one commentator says, the call to discipleship is not set against weak and flimsy excuses here, but against primary personal and family obligations. It takes precedence over the best, not the worst, of human priorities. So can you imagine where our own personal hobbies and interests and leisurely activities stack up against this type of call to follow Jesus? The final one says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus' response, no one. Who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Really? That request is eminently reasonable. This person just wants to say bye first. Isn't Jesus being a tad rigid and fanatical? Who among us has ever done this or could ever do it? It's such a response even within the realm of remote possibility. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us will only come to a worship service at church for an hour if there's nothing else we'd rather be doing. A conflict in our schedules pertaining to activities which bring us pleasure. But Jesus is talking here about a lifetime call which is so urgent that it forbids simply letting other people know and saying goodbye. Or even burying dead people who raised us. Our Christian faith is never so troubling as when we have to wrestle with two simultaneous truths. That we are saved by grace through faith, utterly free of charge, and that God loves us unconditionally just as we are. And that Jesus places such a high demand on those who would follow him. If we take these verses at all seriously, my friends, this call to discipleship, to follow Jesus, 
is extremely daunting. Some say Jesus is only exaggerating here, engaging in hyperbole. But I don't know. Think about other such sayings. Prioritizing God's kingdom as far above and beyond everything else. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Don't be anxious about what you are to eat or drink or wear. Seek first the kingdom of God and all the rest shall be added unto you. James and John were in the boat with their father Zebedee and Jesus called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. One thing you lack, go sell everything you own and give the proceeds to the poor, then come and follow me. If any would be my disciples, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. Here's a good one. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and brother and wife and children, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are all direct quotes. That must be a whole lot of exaggeration. I can easily place myself in the shoes of all three persons here. I think all their statements, all their requests are perfect, perfectly reasonable. I don't have a problem with any of them. As a matter of fact, I think Jesus ought to be thankful he got that far with them. Because all three of them are further along than I am. Or even anybody else I know. It's too much. It's too hard. It's too unreasonable. It's one thing to say you put God first. It's one thing to think it. But to compare yourself to this standard. And leave home without simply saying goodbye. Or attending your mama or daddy's funeral. That's something else. Don't ever think the call to follow Jesus isn't radical, my friends. It is far, far more radical than giving up smoking or drinking or extramarital sex and cursing and coming to church when it's convenient. Whew. Who then can be saved? With Humanity, it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What verse is that, Howard? Can you put that up? I don't even know. I think it's the last verse, <laughs> but I'm not sure. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This desire to turn around and look back in life is as old and disastrous as Lot's wife fleeing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and turning around and looking back and being turned into a pillar of salt. This verse is challenging for me in part because I am someone who 
appreciates the past. Intellectually, I love the study of history. And temperamentally, I am very nostalgic. I am one who believes you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. And I will readily tell you that the best year of my life, apart from the birth of my sons, was 1984-85, my senior year of high school, followed closely by 1988-89, my senior year of college. And yet we have a forward-looking religion, a forward-focused faith. The call of Christ is to urgently, without delay, take hold of the plow and not look back. Eugene Peterson translates this passage here in his message paraphrase translation as follows. First things first, your business is life, not death. And life is urgent. You can't put God's kingdom off until tomorrow. Seize the day. Similarly, the Apostle Paul famously told the Philippians, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What would it take to put our hand to the plow and not look back? What would it look like to say the past is the past but now I am oriented towards the future. What would it feel like to say everything in my life up until Sunday, June 26th at 9.35 a.m. is all water under the bridge, which I cannot change. But everything from 9.36 onward is new. It's different. It is not tied down by nor limited to my life heretofore. What would it be like? To say my best days lie ahead. What would it feel like to say with God all things are possible. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What would it be like to follow Jesus in this text in verses 51 and 53. To imitate Christ in this text and to set your face. What would it look like to set your face Towards your own Jerusalem. Which is to set it towards a death and a resurrection. Towards a death and a rebirth. Towards a death to self and a raised life in service to other people in God's kingdom. What would it look like to set your face towards justice for the marginalized and the poor and the outcast? What would it look like to set your face towards peace in a world riven by violence. And reconciliation in a world beset by division and strife. What would it look like my friends. To set your face towards generous giving and charitable sharing. In a world which encourages the accumulation and the hoarding of every nickel and penny and dime for oneself. What would it look like to set your face towards kindness and compassion and empathy. In a world which encourages stepping on and over your fellow human beings at every possible term. In a zero-sum competition where for you to win means somebody else has to lose. What would it mean to set your face towards humility? Which would result in a validation of opinions and perspectives different from yours. 
What would it mean to set your face towards a deeper commitment to following Jesus and discipleship in a world where that is largely seen as passe, misguided and foolish? What would it mean to set your face towards turning your judgment into curiosity? And making a good faith effort to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. What would it mean to set your face towards the fruit of the Spirit enumerated in Galatians 5. Towards love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. What would it mean to set your face towards faith, not cynicism. Hope, not despair. Love, not hate. To set your face not towards this world's values, but toward a better world entirely. Not towards society's insistence on self-fulfillment, but rather on God's kingdom's definition of self-emptying. Greg Popovich is the famously surly, cantankerous, irascible coach of the perennially great pro basketball team, the San Antonio Spurs. He is infamous for not liking interviews and giving short, curt, obvious answers that benefit no one. When asked years ago how you prepare for a decisive game seven for the world championship against the Miami Heat, Coach Popovich replied, you leave the hotel, Board a bus, go to the arena, get off the bus, go into the arena, and play a game of basketball. Thanks. That's insightful. <laughs> Earlier that same season, during a timeout, the interviewer asked him on national TV, Coach, your team was down by over 20 points, and the game looked over but you have inexplicably stormed back and now lead by 10. How is that even possible? What did you do? And he said, we kept playing. The interviewer looked at him like this. And Coach Popovich looked back like this. Awkward silence. Then the interviewer looked like this. His eyes begging, you've got to give the audience more than just that. Coach Popovich stared back. More awkward silence. And then he just walked away. What if, my friends, there is no magic wand, no special trick, gimmick, strategy, or tactic? What if there is no magical recipe or formula to improve your life's situation or this society's brokenness to get you from down 20 to up 10? What if all that works and all that you can do anyway is keep playing? There are no shortcuts, my friends. The call of Christ is to put your hand to the plow and look forward and plow on. Keep playing. Keep plowing. Set your face. Is the game not going your way? Keep playing. Are you down by 20? And the stands are beginning to empty? Keep playing. Do you have a 
trail of failed romantic relationships in your past? Keep playing. Are you ready to give up on a strained, long-severed family relationship with a loved one? Keep playing. Do you have just as much savings in the, as the, in the bank as you had at age 30? Keep playing. Are you battling depression for years or a sickness which you may fear is terminal? Keep playing. Is your job situation stressful and untenable at its current rate? Keep playing. Is your past littered with various emotional and psychological debris? Keep playing. Have you done all you can do, all you know how to do, and absolutely nothing has changed? Keep playing. When the enemy tells you to take your hand off the plow, you keep it right there. When he tells you to look back, you press forward. When he tells you to give up, pack it in and head home, you tell him just where to get off. You tell him God's got more in store for you. God has happiness and joy and blessings in your future which he cannot steal. When he tells you your cause is hopeless, you tell him get behind me Satan because I'm plowing forward. Your business is life, not death. Seize the day. Do I have any plowers in here this morning? If I do, let me see your hands. Is anyone just going to keep playing in this room? If so, say amen. Is anyone just going to keep on plowing? If so, say amen. Is anyone setting their face right now? If so, say amen. Set your face. You keep playing. You keep plowing in Jesus' name. Amen.